A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Renaissance English History Podcast. I am hoping to create a regular weekly episode of all things dealing with English history, focusing on the Renaissance. Before I get started, though, I want to give a thank you to two podcasts in particular that have inspired me to create this series. The first is the Ancient and Medieval History Podcast, which does not seem to be kept up to date any longer after only about eight excellent episodes. The second is The History of Rome, which is a great series and I highly recommend it. Ancient and medieval history especially showed me that you don't have to be a professional historian to have an informative and entertaining podcast, which leads me to a little introduction about myself. I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a very historically rich area with a lot of Revolutionary War and Civil War signposts. My summer job when I was in high school was working as a docent at the Rockford Foundation, the Georgian home of General Edward Hand, adjutant to George Washington. His home dates from 1794, and some of my happiest memories include giving candlelight tours at Christmas and wandering around the grounds with my friend Darren, both of us dressed in our docent costumes, pretending to be the children of General Hand, and pontificating on what father might bring back for us when he came home from Philadelphia next. After graduation, yep, I was a history major, which was coincidentally right about the time that the internet started taking off and everyone had unlimited AOL dial-up service, I decided to learn how to build a website, and thought the perfect subject to use to learn HTML would be Colonial America. That website really took off, much to my surprise and delight. It no longer exists, but if you're really curious about it, I suggest using the Wayback Machine on the web archive at www.archive.org and putting in the address colonialamerica.org. I do have a copy of it on a CD somewhere, but I'm not particularly interested in looking back at my rudimentary web skills. In 2000, I moved to England on a whim, and I found my soul. I had always been interested in English history and spent many hours in college devouring Alison Weir books on Henry VIII, but being in the UK and being surrounded by it all really took my interest to another level. I began to discover the music of the time, mostly during the daily evensong services at Westminster Abbey, the literature and you name it. I'm back in the Los Angeles area and still keep up my interest, though I should make it very clear that it's only as a hobbyist. I make no claims to be a professional historian. My aim in putting together this podcast is twofold. First, I have noticed a huge increase in all things Tudor in the last few years. The Philippa Gregory book, then movie, 
the other Boleyn girl, really helped, as did the Showtime series, The Tudors. Since I've been so interested for so long, I wanted to join in the fun and contribute to the body of information out there, even if it is only as an amateur. Secondly, it's about time I learned how to podcast, and I think having something to research and write on a regular basis will be good. So those are the reasons I'm starting this podcast. And now, enough about me. Let's go back to the Renaissance. When people think of the English Renaissance, images of Queen Elizabeth I often come to mind, as does Shakespeare. But the Renaissance as a European movement began almost 200 years before Elizabeth in northern Italy in the 14th century. A French word that literally translates to rebirth, the Renaissance was marked by a phenomenal increase in interest in the arts, science, and learning in general. Europe was emerging from the Dark Ages, which had gripped it since the fall of Rome almost 900 years before. It was a traumatic event. The Renaissance began in Italy, which was on the leading edge simply because of location, location, location. In the middle of trade routes with the East and crusaders from the North and West, the Italians were able to mingle with so many types of people and gather ideas and philosophies from them all. A flowering of art, music, and discovery sprang up. This is the age of Petrarch, Da Vinci, Boccaccio, Michelangelo, and so many other famous names. The thing that has always excited me about the Renaissance is that, for the first time in many centuries, people began to create just to create. Music became not just a means to worship, though obviously the church still played a huge role in the reasons composers created, but composers also wrote songs about love, lust, happiness, and daily life. Artists created not just altarpieces for church services and religious meditation, but they also created sculptures celebrating the human body, painted lifelike portraits, and experimented with new colors and techniques. Scientists started thinking that maybe there might be more ways to cure diseases or live better and healthier lives, and that maybe there were places in the world worth exploring. In short, for the first time in a long time, people began living for this life now, and not just seeing life as a precursor to heaven where they would be rewarded for their sacrifices on earth. Life began to be celebrated. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that life was dreary and dark for 900 years for everyone. Certainly no one knew that they were living in a dark age until folks centuries later could look back with the benefit of hindsight and recognize it. I once wrote in an Amazon.com review of a work of historical fiction based in the 12th century that I thought it made life look too miserable. The average person was born and loved by his parents and celebrated things like weddings and good harvests, fell in love, married, loved his own children, and was just as human as we are. It's not as if they got up one morning in 900 AD and said, Oh, woe is me that I live in the most depressing time in history. Why couldn't I have been born 500 years from now when people will enjoy playing the lute and I can put flowers in my bath and cinnamon in my food? But there was a shift in thinking and philosophy during the Renaissance that was palpable to many people. The beginnings of humanism, with the secular focus on this life, led to developments like the printing press, which allowed everyone to have access to books, and the Protestant Reformation, which, simply speaking, taught that everyone can be close to God without the intercession of a pope. Many people did recognize the special time in which they were living, which makes it all the more special, in my opinion. Petrarch, the father of humanism, was the first to call what we now call the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, in the mid-14th century. 
He also claimed to be one of the first people since the Romans to climb a mountain, Mount Vento at over 6,000 feet, purely for pleasure and the nice view in 1336. Again, to be sure, your average farmer didn't wake up one morning in 1400 and say, thank God I now live in the Renaissance, a period that celebrates the potential of humanity and during which time visual artists will learn to convey the perception of depth. But over time, many farmers would start to believe that maybe they had rights and worth as individuals, and maybe they should be able to have access to learning and education. And maybe, after a couple more hundred years, they should be able to secede from the largest military power in the world and start their own country, in which all men are created equal and everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The American Declaration of Independence would make da Vinci or any other great Renaissance thinker very proud. I'm giving this brief overview to the Renaissance simply to have as a background. By the time the Renaissance ideas were really flowering in England, it was almost two centuries later, and it's good to have an understanding of what came before. Most historians date the start of the Renaissance in England to 1485, the year the first Tudor king, Henry VII, began his reign. It is difficult for societies at war to concentrate on new philosophies and ideas, and for several generations before the Tudors, England was engulfed in multiple civil wars, known commonly as the Wars of the Roses. Henry VII was able to consolidate power and left a relatively peaceful realm to his son, Henry VIII, whose reign would see the flowering of Renaissance ideas, particularly in religion, thanks to his own personal marital soap opera. In turn, he left a realm that was more stable, after some hiccups during the short reigns of her siblings, to Elizabeth I, who would witness the full flowering of humanism during her reign, which ended in 1603. It is difficult to pinpoint a direct end to the Renaissance in England, especially as the period afterwards is commonly called the Enlightenment and is marked by very similar ideas. But for the purposes of this podcast, we will loosely link it to the Tudors, with snippets on either side of that dynasty. While the great thinkers in Italy were beginning to develop humanistic ideas and create colorful paintings and compose melodic and polyphonic music, England was still an isolated island, which many people in the rest of Europe didn't take very seriously. The main superpowers during most of this time period were the French and the Holy Roman Empire, which consisted of an enormous area, including modern-day Germany, Switzerland, and much of Italy, just to name a few. In fact, after the 1066 conquest by William of Normandy, the English and the French were inexplicably linked for several generations, sometimes even sharing a monarch, though it should be said that they generally hated and mistrusted each other. The earliest Norman kings of England didn't even spend much time on the island. They stayed on their land in France, which was considered much more cosmopolitan and trendy. Over the centuries, management of land separated by water, which could take anywhere from a few hours to a week or two to cross, became more and more difficult. The French monarchs invaded the lands of the English kings while they were away, thus dwindling the land that could be effectively governed in France. By the time of Henry VII, England was only hanging on to Calais, a small port near the narrowest part of the English Channel. While the superpowers were France and the Holy Roman Empire, there were other parts to be played as well. The Dutch entered from time to time, often playing the powers against each other, and the English, especially under Henry VIII, while enjoying peace at home, often got in the middle of squabbles and disputes between the two. 
One thing that makes the political world of this time even more complicated was the politics of marriage. Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII's first wife, was the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor. Henry's sister Margaret was the Dowager Queen of France. The marriages, annulments, and complicated relationships were as circuitous as anything ever shown on Melrose Place, and can make it very difficult to keep up with what's going on. So for the purposes of this podcast, we will try to ignore geopolitics and focus on the changing society in general. Obviously, we will talk about wars and tensions where needed, but I am not planning to discuss the family trees of all the monarchs and show how they were all related. It is enough to know that it was very complicated, messy, and every monarch seemed to be at least distantly related through marriage to every other monarch. So what was life like for the average Englishman in, say, 1500? The answer depends on what class they were in. If they were a noble, they would administer their lands, collect their taxes, and try to spend as much time at court as possible to get face time with the king. Unless they were on the bad side of the king, in which case they would try to stay away. If the king was reminded about how much he hated you, he could easily strip you of your lands and titles, leaving you with nothing. The court was the center of fashion and politics, with the monarch at the center and all the lords and ladies orbiting around them. The court didn't stay in the same place for very long. The fear of plagues and general uncleanliness would mean that it was a nomadic court, which would pick up and move from place to place every few weeks, sometimes staying in the king's own houses, and sometimes dropping in on an unfortunate noble who would be forced to house and feed the king and the many hundreds of servants for an indefinite time period. Women of the court spent their days sewing, praying, singing, and dancing, and their evenings at pageants and dances where they could flirt and, if they were unmarried, hope to catch the eye of a wealthy, available gentleman. Men spent their days petitioning the king and serving or advising him as needed, and their evenings frolicking with the women. While it appeared to be an environment of parties and fun, intrigue and plots were never far away, and both men and women needed to tread very carefully to not get caught up on the wrong side of the political game. Of course, nobles only made up a very small portion of the roughly two million people living in England in 1500. Most people were peasants who served on the land of a local nobility. The population was rural, based in agriculture, and most people never traveled outside their local villages. Towns like London, York, Cambridge, and Oxford were growing, and there was a class of tradespeople who operated shops, but the majority of the population would never see these towns. Most people bathed only once a year in the spring. The idea that germs caused diseases and regular washing killed germs was still hundreds of years away, so most people were filthy. Cooking was done in a large pot in the center of the thatched roof home. As the food became available, it would go into the pot and be stirred around with everything else that was already cooking. At night, the pot and its contents would be left to cool, only to be added to the next day. Most people could not afford meat on a regular basis, so stews were commonly made with vegetables and were served on thick slices of stale bread called trenchers. The Universal Catholic Church was the center of life in 1500, with people's days marked by services and religious celebrations. Life expectancy was between 30 to 40 years for most people. And so, this tiny island with a rural agricultural population would see its fortunes rise over the next hundred years or so, so that by the turn of the next century, 
it was a leading superpower in the world. The changes and developments that helped make that happen will be what I talk about in this podcast. For now, I will recommend a book for those wanting to learn more about medieval English society. A Social History of England, 1200 to 1500, published by the Cambridge University Press, has a series of essays that go into great detail on society in England leading up to the Renaissance. Next week, I will give more of a background on the Tudor dynasty and the stability they brought to the realm. Future episodes will include technological innovations like the printing press, the effect of exploration and trading, and overviews of Renaissance English music and literature. I hope you enjoy the series. Please visit my blog at http colon slash slash englandcast.blogspot.com to send comments and ideas and view links to more detailed sources. Also, a big thank you to magnatune.com, which allows people like me to license the music you hear during the podcast for free. Thank you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm.